You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even Welcome to the Making Data Simple podcast. I hope this podcast finds you well. I thank you for being here. And as always, if you'd like to be a guest or you have any comments, questions, please send a quick note to almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Be brave. We'd love to have you on. So today I am here to talk or chat with Mr. Bill Higgins. Bill is an IBM Distinguished Engineer for AI for Developers. We're going to get into that, Bill. So I, I, I did a little research on you. You've been with IBM since uh, 2001. Yep. Uh, like somewhere around 10, 11 different roles. And now you've landed at AI for Developer. Yep. Yeah? For Developers. So you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little bit more detail that I can provide. Yeah, well, like you said, I've been at IBM since 2001, and I've had a variety of different roles. I started in tooling in the rational group and uh, then focused on the kind of bringing IBM to the cloud in the early part of the decades, focus on cloud, SaaS, DevOps. Uh, then I actually went to the IBM design group for a couple years and worked with that team to really think about how could we, as IBM was trying to bring in this culture of design, how could I be a bridge to the engineering community and also align things like IBM design thinking with uh, my expertise and things like DevOps and Agile. And that led us to a realization that if we brought in a much better set of collaboration tools, it wouldn't solve the interdisciplinary collaboration, but it could definitely help. So uh, I then started a project where we brought in a next generation collaboration tools like GitHub and Slack and others. And that's really changed the way of working at IBM. Hopefully your groups have experienced that too. And then through that, I met the leaders of the Watson group and the data and AI group, and they offered me this job uh, with AI for developers. And it actually ties back to some of the stuff I've done with driving adoption of technology at scale, um, trying to change culture through technology and the, the problem of reskilling at scale. So um, that's, that's what I'm doing now. So when you were part of the CIO's office, how many different tools... Um... Well, how many different tools did you bring into the business to drive transformation? Um, my group specifically, probably on the order of half a dozen, but there were a couple kind of sister efforts, like the folks who were bringing Box into IBM. And all told, there's there's been about 15 pretty transformational tools. But um, we, were, we were focused on a smaller number that could have a greater impact versus just like a grab bag of tools. So one of the internal rubrics we had was if we can't imagine this being used five or 10 years from now, then don't bother. That's interesting. That's a good target. So, but we, you know, Slack, we have, you've had uh, box, as you mentioned, uh, GitHub, what are they, can you name a couple others? Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot around the, you know, quote unquote DevOps stuff. So Travis CI, um, PagerDuty, New Relic. And in many cases, uh, as you know, groups were already using these tools. So what we really focused on was centralizing them both from a governance perspective, a scaling perspective, so that we didn't have a bunch of little islands, but rather we had these big continents. Because one of the things we wanted to do was in some ways make IBM a smaller company by creating these virtual places where people could come together, just like, as you know, we've been creating physical spaces that bring people together in the physical world. So I'm going to get to AI in just a minute, but the one thing that this interests me uh, is because, 
you know, this is a transformation kind of talks to your, your heritage, what you bring to the table and what you bring to AI. Um, I mean, that, that was a significant transformation. If, if any listeners out there you know, thinking about how can I, I modernize my infrastructure, do you have any suggestions for them in terms of how to get it started? Because you're changing culture and everything else. Yeah, well, I actually, I kind of summarized whenever, like every two years or something, I learned something. And um, so I summarized what I learned with that project in a, a Medium post that I wrote called uh, Tools as a Catalyst for Culture Change. So that that talks through it pretty thoroughly. Um, but I guess some of the quick things I think think of that I talked about in there is you got to work backwards from the practices. Like I really think of tools as a vehicle for practices. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, with um, GitHub, we wanted to enable social coding. Like it's a it's a fine UI and it's a fine tool. But the practice we wanted to enable was social coding, so that people across teams could collaborate at the code level or maybe at the issue level. Whereas before, again, they would have been on little islands and not to be able to share expertise with each other. So like these days, if somebody in one division in one continent is working on CSS, they might ask a question in Slack about a particular technique and just get a link to a GitHub repository. Whereas before, who knows what would have happened. There actually is an interesting link. Um, Maybe I'll provide the segue to AI. This isn't AI per se, but I think it's in the ballpark. So um, one one of the really interesting things that happened was we were thinking about how do we change behavior at scale? And so if you don't mind, I'll just tell you a little yeah, story do. that I think will be a nice segue. So um, we wanted, so in the, before what we did, IBM had a policy of strict compartmentalization around source code. So Al, if you're on team A and I'm on team B, you literally can't even see my code, let alone submit a pull request for it. So because we were in the CIO group, we could change the policy and we said, okay, we want everybody to have these internally public repositories, but you know how culture is. Culture is um, kind of default assumptions and default behaviors. So what did everybody do? Everybody created private repositories because that's what they've been conditioned to do over time. And so one of the folks on the team had an idea to create a little bot that could basically see the creation of repositories. And when the bot saw the creation of a private repository, it would create an issue um, and copy the admins of that private repository and said, hey, we saw you you created a private repository. First of all, we're thrilled you're using the new GitHub enterprise system did you know that we're actually trying to enable inner sourcing and not only is it okay, but we're actually promoting it. And so unless you meet one of these three or four conditions where we believe it is legit to create a private repository, uh, would you please create a, or would you consider changing it to public? And what we saw is that like 40% of people just immediately changed it. They were like, Oh, great. Um, 20 or 30% had questions or perhaps legitimate concerns that we hadn't thought about. And 30% told us to go to hell and don't tell them how to do their job. (laughs) But it was just kind of interesting in terms of like, how could we use, I mean, I won't call it AI, but just a bot that could basically nudge people uh, through um, information and just simple things like click here to make a public repository. It actually was able to help us scale changing of default assumptions and behaviors, which for me is kind of the foundation of culture change. Well, it's interesting you say that because I have seen that change across other tools. Maybe it's just coincidence, but like in Slack, when we first started using Slack, uh, you could create private, or I think it was default private or something, and everything was private. And then all of a sudden, at least if I remember right, you know, everything became public and it was hard to make it private. Uh, you had to go through some through some channels. So, I mean, it, it makes for more transparency. I don't know if that's just luck of the draw. Maybe I'm remembering wrong, but it sure seems... No, you're, you're remembering right, and it's not luck. That was that was a policy that we enforce with configuration because what we were trying to do was, you know, people tend to 
go to, they don't go far enough. And so what we did was kind of try to deliberately swing the, the pendulum towards open to find out where the actual boundary was, like where do you actually start to create risks if you're too open versus not going far enough because of your cultural heritage. And so uh, we, we found some of those boundaries. But yeah, that was definitely intentional. The interesting one last thing is the interesting thing with uh, a lot of those transformations done, they didn't feel one way or another like they were mandated. Uh, it felt like they just kind of took over organically, naturally. I mean, everybody starts using Slack and then all of a sudden the whole company's on Slack and then you're, you're off and running. Uh, and the other, other tool is just the same. Is, was that strategic? Yes. And that's, a, that's another fun story, at least for you know, technical nerds like you and me. So we intentionally started it in a grassroots mode. And we asked our bosses, like the CIO of IBM and the senior VP of transformation, please do not mandate these tools out of the gate because we want them, we want people to feel a sense of ownership. Like this is something that they're opting into because, you know, you can tell somebody to, you can tell a smart developer to do something and they might just totally turn off. Whereas if they make that same decision independently, they'll be all over it. So there was that. But then the other thing you got to remember, we were just coming over from the design organization and we said, we want these tools to succeed or fail based on their usefulness and how they delight the user versus on a top-down mandate. And we were afraid that if there was a top-down mandate, it would create lots of blind spots where there were problems that we weren't hearing about because people had to use them. So it was definitely intentional. But then about a year in, we actually had this pretty significant shift where um, they'd gotten enough traction internally that I think they sort of hit that tipping point. And people like Arvind Krishna, our head of all software, said, you know what? It would be a better thing for IBM if just all teams were on this because then there, there could be easier collaboration. Um, we would just accelerate all of the reasons that teams are adopting these tools organically. So at that point, he um, told all the business units, you must adopt Slack, you must adopt GitHub. And that's where we saw the adoption really hockey stick. But we weren't worried about it from the, the original reasons not to do it because we'd had enough grassroots traction and we had enough of a grassroots community that we were comfortable that these were good on their own merits and art. Well, I mean, we didn't get a vote in the matter, but it, we, we were happy that Arvin did that acceleration. And that's actually how I got to meet Beth and Rob, Beth, Beth Smith, my manager and Rob Thomas, our overall general manager of data and AI, because they were on Arvin's work group and they were some of the best champions for driving those, the adoption of those tools in their domains, because they believed that they would have more productive workforce if they got on them more aggressively. So Essentially, you take a capitalistic approach to start, and then once you're able to get those get that grassroots going, then push it a bit harder. Because I will say that it uh, this is insightful because it felt right. It felt like it wasn't pushed upon the organization. It just felt like it naturally happened. So that, that's that's interesting. Is that where you uh, became a DE, a distinguished engineer? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was right during the the after the initial MVP launch of that project. That's when I got the DE appointment in uh, April 2016. So you must have done something right then, right? <laughs> I, I like to think. Yeah. So it, that transitions nicely into the AI uh, for developers role. How long have you been in AI now? I've been in this role for about seven months. So th this gives you in a unique opportunity to give your perspective. Uh, and that's one reason why well, you were brought into the show here, because we, we talk a lot about machine learning, talk about AI. Uh, I don't know if you could ever talk too much about it, given where the industry is. And we're probably repetitive in a lot of different ways. But uh, the, the interesting, I think, view you have when we're talking AI for developers, 
you've been here seven months. Did you know AI before you came in? I mean, were you well versed? No, not not at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't make any bones about that. Like, um, I I did better on English in my SATs <laughs> than math. So, I um, yeah, I don't make any bones about that. Definitely not. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's no shortage of smart AI people around IBM and around Watson and around IBM Research. So it was really uh, the experiment from um, our managers was, could somebody who's been successful at driving large-scale transformation in an enterprise now help with driving that trans- transformation for AI? Because there's, well, there is a shortage of skills, but I mean, the skill shortage is not the critical problem. The, the critical problem is all of the problems of transformation for which skills is just one. So you got to tell me though, I mean, personally... How did you get up to speed? What was your secret to success? Because I got to believe there's people listening right now that are putting their ear to, if they're driving in the car, they're putting their ear up to the uh, uh, the, the receiver or, or uh, the uh, speaker because, I mean, this is, this is tough. And you've been there only seven months. You're an expert now. Or would you call yourself an expert? And how did you get there? Uh, I certainly would not call myself an expert, but I have learned a lot. Um, I think there's kind of two answers, one which is somewhat replicable and one which is probably not. Um, the somewhat replicable one is I always, I always, even though, so I, one th- one mistake I see engineers constantly do, which I did earlier in my career, but I think I'm better about now, is always taking a step back and asking, what problem are we trying to solve and how might technology help us solve that problem? And when I, when I think about when, sorry, this is what I've learned in the past. One of the things I've learned in the past seven months. So with the the whole adoption of AI, um, I always think about ditches on both sides of the road, um, ditch on one side of the road is to think it's not for me. You know, I'm, I don't have data scientists. I don't have a PhD from Stanford and machine learning. So it's not for me. That's a mistake at this point. Um, and then the ditch on the other side of the road is the kind of the golden hammer problem where you've got a, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you try to apply a technology for the sake of the technology, whether it's AI or anything else. And so the, the thing I really tried to do was understand what is it that is drawing people to this and why are they being drawn to it now? Whereas 15 years ago, perhaps not so much. And it, it led me to just kind of coherently thinking about things that probably most of the audience already know about the, the explosion of data driven by all of the devices and the API endpoints and um, the fact that good data or massive amounts of data can beat algorithms. So I, I just really dug into the fundamentals of what problems that it's trying to solve and what are the, what are the solution patterns that tend to solve those problems? Like where can it be a good fit? Because as you know, probably way better than I do, sometimes machine learning is not the answer. Sometimes you could do something um, with traditional techniques that results in a better outcome for, for less money. But sometimes it can help you solve problems in ways that you couldn't possibly have solved before. Um, so that's the, that's the somewhat replicable answer. The non-replicable one, which I, which I have no shame in saying, is that I've got a lot of really smart people in my organization. And one thing I learned from... Um, uh, Peter Norvig of Google was, uh, if you've got lots of really smart people in your organization, spend time with them, ask them questions, help the, ask them to educate you on what they're doing. Um, because selfishly it, it makes you smarter and it helps you scale that learning curve faster because it's always faster to learn from a real smart person than it is to read any book, at least in my experience. 
But then the other thing is it helps you become a better leader because you're just much closer to the work. So if you've got the luxury of having really smart AI people in your organization, spend time with them. It's really worthwhile and fun. Yeah. I mean, I, so, you know, just a take on what you've stated, good information there, Bill. Um, I look at, you know, the data, I often preach data, the pro- proliferation of data algorithms and the reduction in cost, uh, dramatic reduction in cost of compute and storage have, have put us here. I mean, it's just like a perfect inf- inflection point because we've had uh, ML models around for, for some time. Uh, in fact, I mean, what, in 1959, I think that's when we did the, the checkers game, right? So it's been around IBM that I mean. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm also okay with not being the smartest person in the room. I think that's the first key to leadership. Uh, and lastly, what I've had to do is similar to what, what you have. Uh, number one, I, I have a coach. I have some of my team. So think of this. I'm very open about not being the smartest people, smartest person in the room, so much so that I've got people on my team that I have trained me on a regular basis. I do the exact I, same thing. Yeah, I got a, I, in fact, I got a coaching session that I, I call it on Fridays. And the, the gentleman that I have teaching me right now teaches me. And then I, I uh, you know, in return, I teach him, you know, we talk about leadership and different things. So it's a, it's a mutual thing. So that's number one for me. Secondly, I've got an extensive education plan. Uh, that's, you know, external articles, internal education, formal education, et cetera. And then I think you also said this, I do a ton of networking. I just talk and listen, talk and listen, talk and listen. You can put a lot of stuff together. My notes are crazy. I got notes everywhere. I agree with you. I think that's well said. So uh, I, I one more question. Where, where can uh, people find out more what you're working on and, and, and get in contact with you? Um, well, I'm definitely I'm definitely on Twitter, and I have a Medium uh, blog. But um, <laughs> I got this bad habit of not really writing about what I'm working on until I feel like I figured some stuff out. And um, I, I haven't quite got there with the AI stuff yet, so I haven't started writing about it. But but maybe this uh, podcast will be a good prompt to start writing about some of the things I'm learning because, um, as you know, sometimes the the beginner's mind actually yields insights that the expert mind cannot because you start to internalize things. Yep. All right. So we'll put it in the show notes, uh, Twitter, I presume LinkedIn. I know you're out there and the medium block. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Hey, you're not quite done yet. I got to run through a, a lightning round. Have you heard of this lightning round? So I ask quick questions and you just give some quick, your quickest answer. Okay. We'll do. Um, so you don't have to go into, into detail. At least I try not to, although some of them are very intriguing though. So what are you, what are you most proud of stuff? Uh, definitely my kids. All right. Non-family. What are you most proud of stuff? Uh, I gotta say the transformation we drove with the, the IBM stuff for the past few years, I was really, I've worked here for 18 years and it's a different, better place because of what the team did. I'm glad we got to talk about it then. Very good. What are you most curious about right now? Uh, how we can use this technology to improve, um, well, I guess the trite answer is businesses, but really the the human condition. Like, how can we make it about augmentation and human, yeah, human augmentation rather than replacement? What's next for you in the future? Oh, I think I'm going to be heads down um, trying to figure out some of these problems that we talked about during the call for a year or two. So, I think it'll be what we've been talking about. Working right, closer now- with working closer with you. That's the that's fantastic. The, that's that'll the key work answer. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we already did that on the podcast today. Yes. Hey, I'm, uh, so here's a few questions. This is get to know Bill Higgins right here. So what do you, th- what do you believe you're known for? 
Uh, in the industry, definitely transformation stuff. What is the last gift you gave somebody? Uh, I just gave my son my old iPhone. <laughs> just today, I bet. Yes, yes. Within the past five I'm sure minutes. sure he's excited. <laughs> How old is your son? Uh, he's 15. Oh, well, then he's thrilled. Yep. Yeah, he's a good All guy. Right. What is the last thing you watched on TV? Ooh, what did I watch? I think I watched a, a documentary the other night. Um, what was it on? I think it might have been one of those uh, true crime documentaries on on Netflix. I, uh, I, you know, I do the heavy thinking during the day and at night I have to watch, watch kind of uh, not very deep stuff. <laughs> I got it. Uh, number one role model today, not related to you. Uh, off the top of my head, um, I really, you know, I, I guess in the work context, um, I've always really admired uh, Phil Gilbert, our GM of design, um, because of his clarity of thinking and, and always thinking from the outcomes and understanding just how hard it is to drive transformative change and actually putting strategies in place that can actually have you make the incremental progress that over time um, results in transformative change. And, uh, I mean, and you're the, not the first person oh, really? to say that. Sorry, oh, really? I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I mean, that just tells me I got to get him on the podcast. Oh yeah. He's amazing. He's amazing. And uh, Adam Cutler and his group is leading the AI design work for the IBM design program office. And he's got some, some really great insights as well. Great. Last one promise. The, the number one book you'd recommend that people have got to read. I mean, it could be anything. It could be fiction. It could be nonfiction. It could be self-help, whatever. You've got to read this. The book is. Uh, so I pause just because it's a hard book, but the, the book that's probably been the most helpful to me, again, thinking about transformation a lot is the book diffusion of innovations, fifth edition by Everett Rogers. It was a book that, uh, Tim O'Reilly from O'Reilly media, uh, suggested in like 2005 and I mm -hmm. wasn't able to finally complete it until 2015 because it's a very researchy book with many, many footnotes. Um, uh -huh. but it, it really breaks down, um, how does, how does change propagate in populations? What are the patterns that cause it to propagate and the patterns that cause it to stop? And it was, um, it was really foundational to things like the tipping point by Gladwell and crossing the chasm by Jeffrey Moore, which of course are much more consumable and much more popular. Fantastic. Folks, Bill Higgins, IBM Distinguished Engineer for AI for Developers. Thank you for being on. This has been a great conversation. And you're right. We are going to collaborate even, even more than we're already doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you, Al. Thank you. It was great. Thank you. Until next time, guys, again, please let us know if there's anything we can, we can do better. Al Martin Talks Data at gmail.com. Rate us. See you on the radio. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple Podcast visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out.